So, welcome again. Um, we have reached, we are at like, what, week eight of school? I think there's only six or seven more weeks left until you guys are done, so hopefully you're ready for finals because they're right around the corner. Um, but that means that we are actually in the last week of our series uh, called Is Christianity Relevant? And the goal of this series is, if you've been with us, you've kind of picked up, is that what we wanted to do is we wanted to create a Christian worldview where we don't see Christianity as an add-on or as an option to our life, but it becomes the essential way in which we understand all of our life. It's the decoder glasses we find at the bottom of the cereal box that make sense of everything we see uh, in the world. And we purposely, uh, when Stephen and I were looking at this series and laying it out, we purposely uh, kept the issue of joy and satisfaction to the very last week. Um, that's what we're looking at today, and we kept that because it seems to be the unspoken goal that is assumed by everyone in all of our lives. We seem to make all of our decisions based off the understanding of what it is or the hope of what it is that brings us joy. C.S. Lewis, uh, perhaps you've heard of him through the Narnia movies or the, the books that existed before the movies. Um, this great Christian thinker, this philosopher, also a British spy, which you guys may or may not have known. He worked for uh, MI6 at one point, or what's the, what's the British Secret Service agency? MI6, yeah, yeah, he, worked, he was like a propaganda writer for them, so that's pretty hardcore. What have you done with your life? Um, uh, his autobiography that he wrote uh, is in essence, one of his autobiographies is really just kind of a frame-by-frame -frame picture and explanation of him of how he came to faith in Jesus Christ. It's the slow-motion story of how he was processing things in the book, which he named himself, is called Surprised by Joy. Surprised by Joy. And in this book, um, he describes the journey towards joy, which was his life, and how he came to understand what joy was. And at one point he's describing this experience he had, whether uh, most of his big experiences were around learning. Um, he's describing this experience he had learning in the midst of a garden, um, and he begins to describe what it was that he experienced in that moment. And in that experience, he actually tries to define what joy is. And this is what he says. There's a lot of quotes tonight, so I put them up on the screen for you. This is what he says. He says, it was a sensation of course, of desire. But desire for what? Before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone. The whole glimpse, withdrawn. The world turned commonplace again, or only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased. In a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else. It is that of an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy. Where well, here's a technical term and must be sharply distinguished from both happiness and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and only one in common with them. The fact that anyone who has experienced it will want to experience it again. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. So here, here Lewis is describing this joy, and he doesn't really tell us what joy is, but he, just, he, he paints this picture that joy is something that you would give anything in life if only to experience again and for longer. And I would say that there's probably no desire greater in our world than the desire to have that joy and that experience that Lewis himself is describing. 
In fact, in this book, he goes on to talk about how our moments of joy, our moments when we're overwhelmed with elation and satisfaction, those are actually the moments where we're having the clearest and most honest thoughts about life. For joy is what we were made for as humans. God made us in the Garden of Eden to be in a perfect relationship with him where we had perfect joy in our relationship with God, perfect joy in our relationship with each other. But sin, when it came, it severed us from that joy. Sin removed us from God, from a clear vision of God. And so when that removal came, not only were we removed from the presence of joy, but the object of joy was obscure. We couldn't see it clearly. We couldn't really understand or make sense of what was left. Take a look with me at the passage which Megan just read for us. And I want you to hear what it says about life and our pursuit of joy. So this is Solomon giving his reflections on life. He gives this book at the end. He's walked away from God, and now he's come back, and he's saying, what did I find in my life? What is the summary of my life? And this is what he says. Behold, what have I, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lots and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he that is man will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now, what a beautiful truth that God is going to occupy man's heart with joy. So whether you have rejoice in your lot, whether you rejoice in your possession, whether you rejoice in the hardship, whether you rejoice in the toil, the joy which comes, comes from God himself. But the problem is, is what the Bible says is the greatest problem of man. That's that we've lost God. How can our hearts, how can God occupy our hearts when our hearts are far from him? How can God occupy our hearts when Paul says our hearts are hostile towards him? Even for us in here who consider ourselves Christians, we can read this truth, but there are times in our life where we feel occupied by nothing. We feel the pain of what Lewis calls old bitterness. We feel the emptiness of sorrow. And this is the result of this divide. And because of this divide between man and God, the blurred image of what we knew becomes the lens through which we try to squint and make sense of everything else we see. Seeing a shadow of what once was, we begin to search, search for shapes in what is. We saw something at one point. We know that joy existed. We had this experience. We have this longing. And so now we strain our eyes trying to see what it was that left that imprint of joy in our hearts. Why it is that we have this insatiable desire to be satisfied? We want purpose in our education because we want satisfaction in our careers. We want to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or close friends because we want to find joy in the deepest kind of friendship. We look to politics and to justice because we want to protect and preserve joy for those who are around us. We're worried about pain and suffering because they seem to obstruct and inhibit our feelings of joy. We're all searching for joy. And we're going to look at three truths tonight. 
And the first truth is the problem of the search for joy. And the first truth is this, is that joy is not God. Joy is not God. Joy is not our God. Joy is not the God of the Bible. And we may all agree to this point in principle because we're here. We're, we're, we're coming to a Christian campus ministry. We believe that God is not an emotion. God is a thing. God is a divine being. But to actually believe this truth in a way that impacts our life, it requires a lot of discipline, doesn't it? Look at what um, God says in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 26 through 27. Listen to what it says about God. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord, the God of the Bible, made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. And so what the author is doing here is he's making distinctions between false gods, the gods of other nations, and the true living God of the Bible. And the distinction he points out here is that the thing that makes God God, one of them, is that joy only exists before him. Joy is in the presence of this God. All joy is God's joy. Therefore, when you think of these moments, when C.S. Lewis was reading that experience of that thing you want to feel again, I'm sure you all thought of something. And what the Bible is saying here is in that experience of something, you are getting a scent of God himself. You are getting a glimpse of who God is and the joy we were meant to find in him. And this scent or this experience, it's, and as it ought to be, it's intoxicatingly powerful. It consumes us. Yet that is, that is the exact power of that experience, if not understood properly, is what leads to the problem of joy. The problem of joy is that we tend to see the object or the experience of joy as God itself. See, Lewis describes in reflecting back on his life, um, he says that he lacked a clear understanding of joy because all of his efforts were, and this is a quote from him, a futile attempt to contemplate the enjoyed. A, a meaningless effort to try to distill everything from the object which he enjoyed. He tried to examine the object which brought him joy as if that object itself was the source of joy. And this is more than a trap for us to fall into this object worship. In fact, it's an altar for us. It's an altar that we come and we begin to sacrifice our time, our money, and our identity in hope that whatever object or experience we're chasing at the time, that it will bring us again that fleeting experience we once had. And we will go to great lengths to get that back. Blaise Pascal, right? You know Blaise Pascal? So, famous, you will one day. Famous French mathematician, right? All you guys are reading up on... Pascal's triangle. Yes, Pascal's triangle. That's the one. This dude, uh, he knew how pervasive this desire was because mathematicians know everything. He said this, listen, listen to this quote, is what he saw as common to all men. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others of avoiding it, it's the same desire in both, attended with different views. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. We are all desperate for joy. Every decision we make 
we make hoping that it would bring some sort of satisfaction or clarity to our own life. Let me ask you six questions. Six questions. I don't want you to raise your hand or answer them out loud. These are six questions. I want you, Cam, did you raise your hand? Once, everyone's looking at you like you did. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Cam's not ashamed. Um, I want you to, to think of these questions honestly in your heart and answer them. The first question is this. Does your sense of purpose involve making intentional and often costly plans to experience life to the fullest? Does your sense of purpose involve making intentional and often costly plans to experience life to the fullest? Is it difficult to prioritize school, family, church, or other activities when faced with a competing offer of entertainment or adventure? Do you cover your disappointment when you fail to find the same satisfaction in activities which culture promotes as satisfying. I'll read that one again. Do you cover your disappointment when you fail to find the same satisfaction in activities which culture promotes as satisfying? Say that another way. Are any of you ashamed to tell me you don't like the office? <laughs> Where you want to hide? You're ashamed. Good, thank you. You raised your hand. Oh, I was You're not ashamed. Good, thank you, Maggie. <laughs> Maggie. Um, next question. Uh, do you constantly worry about others' opinions of you? Do you often feel trapped inside of your own emotions, never getting what you're longing for? And are you worried to discuss specific hobbies or interests around people who disapprove of such topics? Are you worried to talk about hobbies or interests around people who disapprove of such topics? So the six questions are six questions that I, I tweaked just a little bit the verbiage inside of them. But what those are, those are six questions from psychology today that they use to indicate signs of codependence. They define codependence as this, control, nurturing, and maintenance of a relationship with individuals who are chemically dependent or engaging in undesirable opinions. These are people who are enslaved to other things. Another mental health website says this, codependents have good intentions. They try to take care of a person who is experiencing difficulty, but the caretaking becomes compulsive and defeating. A wife may cover for her alcoholic husband. A mother may make excuses for a problem child. A father may pull some strings to keep his child from suffering the consequences of delinquent behavior. So I was thinking on this, and I think that because we don't have clarity on what the object of joy is, we have become codependent upon ex experiences or objects of what we think brings us joy. That experience or that object, we protect it, we wrap our lives around it, we become enslaved to it, and though our minds never went to cast a vote, our hearts have voted to make that experience or that object our king. We take one paragraph from this, uh, this mental health website, and I'm going to change the words caretaking, and I'm going to change those to experience seeking, and I'm going to take being needed and put it as finding joy. So those are the words that I'm exchanging here. I'm just changing the subjects of what it is we're looking at. And this is what it says. The problem 
is that these repeated experiences allow the needy individual to continue on a destructive course and to become even more dependent on unhealthy experience seeking. As this reliance increases, the codependent develops a sense of reward and satisfaction from finding joy. When the quest for joy becomes compulsive, the codependent feels choiceless and helpless in the relationship, but is unable to break away from the cycle of behavior which causes it. This is something we don't typically think of because no one ever blames people for trying to be happy, right? In fact, that's most often what we prescribe to people. You just need to find a man who makes you happy. You need to find a career that satisfies you. But what we don't realize is behind that solution, we're often becoming enslaved to the very object we're turning to for freedom. Madonna, who most of you guys know Madonna. Yeah, still, we're not that young now. Uh, Madonna, out of all female entertainers, she's second in net worth only to Oprah, which is crazy. So Madonna's, this is off my script, Madonna is the second, the, the female entertainer who's worth the second most amount of money at $580 million. Oprah is $3.8 billion. That's crazy. Anyway, um, this is what Madonna says. This gets at the problem of slavery. She says this, all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push, I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre, not interesting, again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I'm somebody, I have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. There's these two paradoxes that we live in. And the first is that none of us know what joy is. But the second is at the same time, our existence and satisfaction have become dependent upon having it. If I pulled this room as to what's the greatest object or experience of joy, we'd probably get 30 or 40 answers. You know, each of us are throwing our lives at it, trying to find it. Last week in our Thursday night Bible study, uh, we examined a story in scripture which shows this point. In Mark 10, we see a rich young ruler who has money, power, wealth, and popularity unrivaled in his day. And what's, he comes to Jesus, and what's unique about this story is what he asks Jesus. So in Mark 10, 17, we see his question. It says this, And as he was setting out on his journey, so Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we need to ask ourselves this question. Here's this man who's young, wealthy, powerful. All of He has so many faculties at his disposal for satisfaction. And he comes to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the man proclaiming an eternal kingdom. And this man who has many good things, he's like, well, if I could have that thing, then I'd be happy. If I could get that eternal life that Jesus is talking about, if I could live forever and have that as my future, then I will finally be satisfied. Look at how the story continues. Verses 18 through 22. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, that's the man saying to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept these from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now let me pause for a second here. And I want us to examine in brief who it was that this young ruler was talking to. He was talking to Jesus, the Son of God. God made flesh living on the earth. And what does scripture say about God as it relates to joy? Well, let's look. Psalm 4, verses 6 through 7 says this. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Is that not what this young man was looking for? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and wine abound. Psalm 16, verse 11, says this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Isaiah 12, verse 3 through 4. With joy we will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you, that is, you, man, will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. And then lastly, Psalm 107, 8 through 9 says this. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul fills with good things. You see, this rich man who came to Jesus had many possessions, yet we see his codependence on full display. He saw his possessions as instruments of joy, not realizing that without a musician, instruments could do nothing. Without the wind of the player, instruments gather in a pile and amount to nothing but scrap. And his codependence had blinded him to the source of joy that was standing before him. He failed to see what true joy was. On this, we return to C.S. Lewis, who, speaking of how these desires let him down, this is what he says. I knew now that they were merely a mental track left by the passage of joy. Not the wave, but the wave's imprint on the sand. So a little complicated language here, so just hang with me. The inherent dialect of desire itself had in a way already shown me this. For all the images and sensations, so think that all these experiences and objects, if idolatrously mistaken for joy itself, soon honestly confessed themselves inadequate. All said in the last resort, it is not I. I'm only a reminder. Look, look. What do I remind you of? And the question we all have to ask ourselves when we experience those joys is what do they remind us of? 
That's our second point, the point that only the Bible can answer. Our second point is this, is that joy is not God, God is joy. Okay? Joy is not God, but God is joy. Here the rich young ruler was staring clearly in the, the, the image of joy in the eyes, and yet he was still distracted by his substances. He was still searching for things that he could amass and have and hold. Jesus offered him treasures in heaven. And you see, when God becomes the clearest picture of who joy is, it doesn't mean we're no longer codependent. But it makes us codependent on things which are joyful. Jesus doesn't say, you can find joy and be satisfied on your own. Instead, he gives you joy, but he attaches it to himself. You are dependent upon Jesus. And here's the distinction. If your joy is your God, then you are codependent, living in an existence of fear, of anxiety, and of constant vigilance, just hoping that the object of joy itself will never be defamed. Or hoping that when you return to that again, your experience of it will not be lessened. But if God is your joy, then your dependence upon him is a firm, unchanging, and eternal foundation in all circumstances. Now look back at Ecclesiastes 5 and listen to the different circumstances that Solomon is talking about here. Behold, I have seen what is good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil of which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. Solomon is saying, it is right for man to seek joy. Find joy. Go do it. Seek, eat, drink. Be a treasure hunter. But then look at what he says. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, for God will keep him occupied with joy in his heart. How is God able to occupy our hearts with joy? Why is God able to do this, regardless of if we're given a harsh lot or if we're given benevolent prosperity? How does that work? Here we see someone who has much and someone who has little, someone who has opulence and someone who has nothing, but God's saying that you had I'll give you the power to enjoy it. That's because neither famine nor feast, opulence nor oppression, neither wonder nor want is the source of joy. God is the source of joy. And he gives those he desires to fill joy, and he fills them abundantly. And why is God our joy? Because if God found anything other than himself beautiful or satisfying, he would be cruel to us. Hey, come to me, everyone, and treat me like I am the greatest. Make much of me, love me, worship me, but I'm going to worship that. You come to me, I'll go to him. You seek me for salvation, but I don't think I can give it. I'm turning to this guy. You see, if God was not the source of joy in and of himself, God would be an idolater. He would be worshiping something else, but because God is infinitely satisfied in himself. As a divine, perfect, eternal being, how much more will we, as created, finite, toe-stubbing, cold-getting, test-failing creatures, find infinite joy in God himself? So why is it, then, that this rich young ruler was able to sit in the presence of joy and walk away 
disheartened. God is joy. And here he is seeking God. He's going to Jesus and he says, give me eternal life. Give me what it is that will satisfy me. And he walked away unsatisfied and joyless. You see, sin never changed God. Sin changed us. God has been, will be, and will continue to be the radiant and beautiful God he has always been. But sin has blinded our eyes to that beauty. When we are born, we see the glory of God imprinted on our creation, imprinted everywhere we look, and we, just like the rich man, choose to ignore that, and ignore what is made prominent, and seek to find joy in other places. You see, we need more than God to be joy. We need God to bring us joy. And this is our last point. Joy is not God. God is joy made accessible through Jesus Christ. You see, the rich man attempted to seek God for joy, but he attempted to find that joy outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, you cannot find joy outside of Christ, and you cannot enjoy God outside of Jesus. We can't find joy outside of God, but we will never enjoy God outside of Jesus. It can't happen. There's no entrance. There's no doorway. In order for our blinded eyes to be opened, Jesus had to die to fix our distorted vision. Jesus died to make clear what was convoluted. In John 15, the night before Jesus goes to the cross, he's speaking to his disciples. And he's using this illustration of a vine. He's saying, if you abide in me, if you have faith in me, you are the branch that I am the vine. If you exist in this relationship of faith, you will bear much fruit. You will have the love which God the Father loves God the Son. We get that. We get that God loves us. We get that he wants to have that love. But if what Jesus says in John 15, 11, which should be stunning to us, these things, Jesus says, I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. See, it's one thing that God would love us, that he would give us our love, that he would give us forgiveness, that he would forgive the wrong that we've done in this world. But here Jesus himself is saying that his gospel, that abiding in him, that faith in him, that the cross, that the purpose, that the call was so that we would believe and obey for the purpose of joy. Jesus wants you to come to him for joy. And not just any joy. Not joy like you're on the Ferris wheel joy. Not joy like the new season of Stranger Things is our joy. Not joy which is dependent upon a perishable object. But the very joy which Jesus himself enjoyed in God for all eternity. Without end or obstruction, without obstacle or hardship. Eternal joy. You see, Jesus' salvation through faith is nothing more than an invitation into the very joy of God himself. This is why Jesus describes, for those who, who get to heaven through grace by faith, and they stand before God, look at how Jesus illustrates their greeting. He says this, Matthew 25, 23, And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. At the end of all things, when we get Jesus, we get joy. 
You see, we all want joy, but we all settle for something less. But it's only in the gospel where joy, true joy, imperishable, undefiled, eternal joy is offered to you in Jesus because only Jesus has died for you. Only Jesus laid down his life for you. Only Jesus can restore you. Only Jesus loves you. Only Jesus satisfies us. And yeah, and, and inside of all of that, we'll have moments where we don't feel that joy. We'll have moments where we're overwhelmed with sorrow. The same Jesus that wrote these things to make our joy complete is the same Jesus that grieved with Mary when Lazarus had died. And yet, because of what Jesus has done in our hearts, we will always be able to fight for that joy and have hope for that joy in the midst of darkest circumstances because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can sever the salvation that Jesus has brought us. We have God. We have the one to whom all joy points. We, if, and if we have God, we have everything. You see, if God is not our joy, how many of you have heard Paul's line, to live as Christ, to die as king? Right? We hear it. We see it on tattoos. We see it on Instagram. If God is not joy, Paul's idea that to live as Christ and to die as king is utter foolishness. If God is not joy, there is no greater way to waste your life than to serve this God. But if God is joy, there is nothing we wouldn't do, no vice we wouldn't give up, no sin we wouldn't fight, no ocean we wouldn't cross, no person we wouldn't reach out to with the overwhelming joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we have been redeemed from emptiness and slavery forever. So I'm going to close with a challenge. A challenge and a quote. The challenge is this. To fight for joy. To ask God to illuminate in your heart the realities of his joy. That you would not be like the rich man who stared Jesus in the face blindly, but instead God in his mercy would lift the scales from your eyes so that you might see Jesus rightly and be satisfied eternally. See, I've used this illustration before and I love it. I went to St. Thomas with Owen was two at that time, this island in the, the Virgin Islands. It's beautiful. We're sitting on this bay. There are boats in it. The water was that clear turquoise where you see the gradient of the sand into the water, into the deeper turquoise, the green islands, the white boats. And here's my son sitting on this concrete pad, the only concrete pad on the midst of this whole beach, turned away from the ocean, running a dump truck into a tree. Here on one side was infinite beauty, and he's blind to it. But whose problem was that? See, the problem of joy for the believer isn't that the object isn't beautiful. It's that the observer, without the grace of God, is blind to it. But in the gospel, Jesus opens our eyes to see that the greatest joy we have is the salvation that God gives us in Jesus Christ. Pray that he would do that for you. So I want to conclude with this quote from Lewis, a quote which is part of his conclusion to how he defines his conversion experience. And I hope that this is your experience too. He says this, but what in conclusion of joy? For that, after all, is what the story has mainly been about. To tell you the truth, the subject has lost nearly all interest for me since I became a Christian. I cannot indeed complain, like Wordsworth, that the visionary gleam has passed away. 
I believe that that old snap, that old bittersweet, has come to me as often and as sharply since my conversion as at any time in my life, whatever. But I now know that the experience, that experience of joy, considered as a state of my own mind, had never the kind of importance I once gave it. It was valuable only as a pointer to something outer and other. And while that other was in doubt, the pointer naturally loomed large in my thoughts. When we're lost in the woods, the sight of a signpost is a great matter. He who first sees it cries, look! And the whole party gathers around and stares. But when we found the road and are passing signposts every few miles, we shall not stop stare. They will encourage us, and we will be grateful for the authority that set them up. But we shall not stop and stare, or not much, not on this road, though their pillars are of silver and their letterings of gold. For when we discover the joy of God himself in our salvation, it is onward and upward to the joy of glory before every Christian. So the conclusion of this series is, is Christianity relevant to relationships, to education, to careers, politics, dating, and suffering? Is Christianity relevant to joy and satisfaction? No, it's not. Joy and satisfaction are relevant because of Christianity. For without Christianity, Without God itself, they are shadows of glimpses. They are images of vapors. But in God, they are the concrete reality of all things being restored to the God who was, it is, and is to come. For the Christian, all the experiences of life are seen clearly and truly through faith in Jesus. And I pray that this road, that this God, captivates you. Not just for the three or four years of college, but for the remainder of your life, because it is what will captivate you for all of your eternity. Let's pray. Lord, to speak of joy is to attempt to explain something which we can only know now in part. Lord, we cannot see with clarity how pure and sinless and righteous you are. And because of that, we can contemplate the salvation that Jesus did when a sinless Jesus came to die for a sinful people. We can hear that and we can understand it as good. And we can respond with gratitude. We can respond with joy. But until we see truly the weight of our sin and the beauty of yourself, to even speak of joy in human terms is to speak almost in a foreign language. And yet, God, you have given us an experience which will overwhelm us. You have given us a promise that because we have been saved in Jesus, whether hardship or hope, whether success or sorrow, we are able to find joy knowing that we have been delivered from death by Jesus himself. And so Lord, I pray that this group of believers 
is typified by a joy indestructible. A joy that is rooted not in the gifts of God, but in God himself. A joy that doesn't use Jesus as a jukebox or as a vending machine, but sees Jesus as the Savior and Lord who in himself is the pleasure of God. Lord, I pray that you satisfy us in ways that we can't even understand. For when we are filled with joy, we'll sing of your marvelous deeds. We'll proclaim your glory among the nations. For the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy.